What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we officially begin the summer season here at the church. We will be exploring the stories of the prophet Moses. Perhaps you know some of the basics of his story, freeing the Jewish slaves in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, and receiving the Ten Commandments. But there's so much more than that. In Judaism, Moses is the only person considered to have seen the face of God. He's said to be the most important prophet, even more important than King David. His story is still told thousands of years later because of his faith, his leadership, and his writing. The scriptures we will read over the next few months from Exodus, along with Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, are all said to have been from him. But Moses, this last week we heard about the Supreme Court reversing Roe versus Wade, making abortion illegal in many states across the country. Moses' story touches on such topics. Let's hear from Emily, our scripture from Exodus. This is the very beginning of the tale, even before Moses. Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat led to the extended family of Abraham relocating from Israel to Egypt. The family grew and grew for hundreds of years until they are a small nation, and their relationship with the Egyptians goes from positive to downright destructive. This is from the book of Exodus, chapter 1, verses 8, through to chapter 2, verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in impo imposing ta tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imp imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. When Pharaoh commanded all his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river 
while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the, Pharaoh, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Matthew chapter seven, verse 12. In everything do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may we be an inclusive community passionately following Jesus Christ. Work in us as we pursue your love and a way of living with others that reflects your will. In Christ we pray. Amen. In the 1960s, there were some big problems in this country. Perhaps the biggest was crime. You can see it in all the charts and graphs. From 1960 forward, property crime went up, larceny went up, as well as burglary and vehicle theft. It was a, an epidemic, with crime doubling and tripling into the 70s and 80s. Violent crime quadrupled from 1960 to 1991. What was our country to do? How could we end this awful violence? Well, it turns out we were able to do it. Since the 1990s, crime has steadily decreased and in the last few years, crime levels were nearly back to where they were before the 1960s. Even as violent crime is back in the headlines in the last couple of years, the numbers are far below what they were three and four decades ago. You may not remember this, but in New York City, there were 2,200 homicides in 1990. Last year, 488. We are far better off today than we were back then. So what happened? How did we reduce crime? There are several answers, some of which have a far smaller effect than you'd think. Increased police on the street helped some, repeat offenders put in jail for longer helped, and the end of the crack cocaine epidemic helped as well. But there were a couple of reasons that seem totally unexpected. The first is so interesting, I have to include it here. We've always known lead can have huge negative effects on the brain and on a person's behavior. That's why old paint chips in the house can be so toxic to children. Lead also used to be in gasoline, but when it was outlawed, we started to see these reductions in crime. Properly taking care of our environment seems to have had a strong effect on reducing crime. Pretty interesting. The other reason, though, is much more in line with today's topic. Abortion, legalized across the country in the 1970s, connects to a decrease in crime. There's a, a podcast called Freakonomics with an episode on abortion and crime if you want to learn more. But how does that work? Why would abortion impact crime? And the reason is something called wantedness. Wantedness is the desire and perceived ability of a parent to care for a child. If a parent doesn't want to have a child and has to raise them anyways, how much love and support will that child get? Probably not very much, right? 
if the parent doesn't have food and money or can't provide early childhood education, how well will that child do later in life? Probably not very well. These deficits early in life can cause a person to commit crimes later. The love and care and nurture of a parent early on can make all the difference in a person's life. Now, just because abortion reduces crime doesn't mean it's automatically a good thing. Far from it. If you believe abortion is murder, it's just as bad as those other crimes. So I thought I'd ask some folks who have seen a lot more than I have their thoughts in this area. I had a chance to visit with some of our homebound members here at Grace, and I asked them, Roe versus Wade was just overturned this week. How do you feel about it? And these folks in their 80s and 90s, who have lived through this history of legalized abortion and and decreased crime, had opinions that ran the gambit. One person said they believed a woman has a right to choose. Government interfering in that decision seemed wrong to them. Another said the life of a child is more important than any other consideration. They valued life above all else. You can hear echoes of the national debate here. On this city of Moses, contribute to this. How might he help us move beyond this split both in the church and across the country? His saga begins with the oppression of the Jewish people by the Egyptians. They don't like how quickly the foreign population is growing. They especially don't like that the Jewish people are increasing in power either. Uh, The Egyptians do everything they can to undermine Joseph's descendants and even go so far as to kill all the baby boys just as they are born. There's a little bit of history behind this. Egyptians used something called a birth stool. It wasn't actually a chair. It would be two large rocks that a woman would sit on. If you think giving birth in a hospital bed today is tough, imagine how bad it would have been back then when rocks were considered to add comfort to a woman giving birth. Like today, the midwife or doctor would be the first to hold the baby. That is when the Hebrew midwives were told to kill these baby boys. The midwives don't do it, so the pharaoh comes up with an even more sinister plan. Instead of the death of babies looking like an accident, he demands that they are ripped out of their mother's arms and intentionally drowned in the Nile River. That's when we hear what happens to Moses. He is born and hidden for months. Finally, when the risk was too great, she made a a small basket, placed her baby in it, and pushed it down the river. I'm sure she prayed every second of that process. How awful to be forced to give up your child when you love him so much. So Moses is caught in the reeds there along the riverbank. The Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby, takes pity, and a young Hebrew girl speaks up. This is Moses' sister, and she says, Do you want me to get you a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And when the princess agrees, Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mother. And Moses' mother gets paid to take care of her own son. Pretty fabulous here. Live with the princess and be her son. He will be prince, and he will not grow up with his Hebrew brothers and sisters. I imagine this made Moses feel like an outsider. He isn't with his people, but he isn't like the Egyptian royalty either. We'll have to come back to this theme later in our series. But one thing is for sure, his survival is an unlikely one. This happened to Jesus too. When he was born, 
King Herod feels threatened by the wise men coming and looking for a Messiah, so he orders all the children to and under around Bethlehem to be slaughtered. Jesus manages to survive, and like Moses, he is a savior. But not just to the Hebrews. No, Jesus is to save the whole world. Now, I know neither of these stories talks about abortion directly. That idea isn't quite found in the scriptures. So what we have to do is try and interpret the stories and passages we have and take a next step in what that means for how we live our lives. That's why folks in our church can land on different answers regarding abortion. We have to ask what should we, as Methodists, think about this topic. When babies are ordered to die and brave women resist, what does that mean for us? When tragedy strikes and we are left with no good options, what is the right thing for us to do? Our Bishop John Scholl wrote a letter about the Supreme Court ruling this week with an interesting point in it. He said, we as a church have different thoughts. Both former President George W. Bush and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton are both Methodists in good standing in our church. We are a wide and diverse church. He then went on to quote The Social Principles, a book that shares our stance on these complicated issues. It says, Our belief in the sanctity of unborn human life makes us reluctant to approve abortion, but we are equally bound to respect the sacredness of the life and well-being of the mother and of the unborn child. Another phrase in our statement on abortion says so much about how difficult this topic is. It says, we recognize tragic conflicts of life with life. How can you choose the mother over a child or a child over the mother? How can you say one human is more important than another? These are tragic decisions that can have awful effects on both sides. Years ago, my sister had a recurring dream. In it, my mom was holding a baby that was not one of my brothers or my sister. My mom had another child. And in this dream, the baby died tragically. After weeks of this dream happening over and over, my mom took all of us out to Denny's for breakfast. She told us about my sister's recurring dream and that my mom had a confession to make. When she was younger, before she met my father, she had had an abortion. I will never forget our stunned faces and my mother weeping with tears of regret. What would life have been like had she not done that? She wouldn't have met my father. I wouldn't exist, nor my own family. That tragic choice led to so much good in my life and for my wife and for my children. How do you measure the worth of a baby and the weight of raising that child to do good in this world? I may not have a good answer for what kinds of laws we should have in this nation or how to answer the problem of abortion, but I am certain of one thing. Wantedness matters. If we are going to move forward as a community and as a nation, we have to support children not just in utero but in every step of their journey, from good health care for pregnant moms at birth 
and beyond. We have to increase wantedness. I'm very proud of our preschool here at Grace. A formal education in the first few years of life can have a profound impact on a child. You might think preschool means kids do better in school, which might start out true, but after a few years, most children are all about the same academically. The real impact of preschool is lifelong. Preschoolers, when they get older, are far less likely to be arrested, more likely to graduate from high school and college. They are less likely to struggle with substance abuse. We aren't just making kids a little smarter. We are helping them chart a course for an entire lifetime. I mentioned our search for a Sunday school superintendent earlier. Sunday school can make a, a world of difference in a child's life, too. Children and youth that are an active part of church are less likely to do drugs. They are more likely to wear their seatbelt and get less traffic tickets, less likely to shoplift and to be in trouble with the police. They skip school less and get less detention. They are more likely to volunteer in the community and participate in student government. This is every parent's dream for their child, and there is cold, hard data to back up all these benefits. We are doing our job to support children from birth to adulthood when we have a great Sunday school program. We aren't just interested in grandstanding against abortion or for a woman's right to choose. We won't be satisfied until every parent gets the child has the advantages that come with Sunday school and a caring community that will do everything in its power to make life better. Jesus said, I have come so that you might have life in its fullness. Abundant life is the goal. And that means we fight for life at every turn. For mothers, for the unborn, for children, for those that don't have enough food today or clothes for tomorrow. We keep working until every child feels the joy of wantedness. Because Jesus wants every child to know God's love. Let's end here. There's a documentary called The Dropbox about Pastor Lee who leads the God's Love Community Church in Seoul, Korea. He and his wife saw abandoned babies in the city streets, and so they decided to do something about it. They built what they call the baby box, a small box in the wall of the church where you could leave your child instead of on the street. It had a, a warming light and it would make a buzzer sound so someone in the church could come and get the child. Pastor Lee didn't think anyone would use it, but he was wrong. Uh, some had special needs, others were perfectly healthy. One mother left a note with her child that said, please don't try to find me. I am sorry. I am so sorry. Where others have ignored the issue, Pastor Lee has taken these abandoned children in. His church now runs an orphanage with dozens of children having saved hundreds of lives. All it takes is one person who cares. These are human beings like any other, and they deserve love. Even the person who made the film was transformed by this orphanage. He always thought of himself as a Christian attending church on Christmas and Easter with his mom, but seeing Lee's compassion and sacrifice, he realized that Christianity means more than showing up to church. 
It means helping those who are helpless and loving even when it seems impossible. The director, Brian Ivey, ended up giving his life to Christ, committing to live more like Jesus. And that's my hope for all of us, that in the most challenging of situations, we seek life. When society has given up on people, we don't lose hope. We keep working toward better answers and better solutions that benefit as many people as possible. Moses' mother made a hard choice, and somehow God was able to work that out toward the good. May we too be people who work for God's good to bring life in its fullness in every situation. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.